This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Kim Landers coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. There are new curbs on alcohol in Central Australia as the federal and NT governments try to tackle soaring youth crime and violence. For the next three months, takeaway alcohol sales in Alice Springs will be restricted and advice on whether to impose further bans will be handed down next week. So will this fix the problem and what does the Alice Springs community think? Oliver Gordon reports. Every day after school, dozens of young people stream into the Gap Youth Centre in Alice Springs. The majority of whom are young, Indigenous, male and female young people who are disadvantaged, marginalised, and many of them have a great deal of challenges in their lives that they are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Jen Standish-White is the organisation's chief executive. The centre stays open until about 9pm. Then a bus comes to drop kids home. And obviously if we are dropping the young people home, if there's not a responsible adult at their home, we would try and find an auntie or an uncle. You know, They would tell us where else we could go. And if we can't find a responsible adult, we bring them back to the youth centre and we call... Um, Territory families to come and collect them, to take them home. An increasing number of people in Alice Springs, some of them young, are slipping through the cracks and turning to crime. The town has seen a 43% increase in assaults over the past year, including a 53% increase in alcohol related assaults. Now it's prompted an intervention. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Today we have uh, some significant uh, announcements to make. The Prime Minister's announced a regional controller to ensure Territory and federal programs work together and he's committed to extending funding for safety and community services past June this year. Those organisations need to have that continued funding and we'll provide it for them. The NT government is going further, outlawing takeaway alcohol sales two days a week and reducing bottle shop hours on remaining days. It's even flagged the possibility of reinstating alcohol restrictions in remote NT communities and town camps. The NT's chief minister, Natasha Files. I ask the community to work with us. Michael Little is an Alice Springs town councillor. He thinks the ban on takeaway booze could have mixed results. They can't get a drink, they're going to try and break into some other places. But but I really commend the Indy government for doing this, you know, and they, they've done something. The Al Yawra man has been involved in reducing youth crime for many years. When it comes to helping the town's more vulnerable young people stay on track, he hopes to see more funding for education, especially in the town's youth diversion centres. Because that's the only place where these kids, and I'll call them kids, have the relationship with an educator. The father or the mother or the uncle or the auntie aren't educators in this kid's life. Alice Springs Town Councillor Michael Little ending Oliver Gordon's report. Have you ever thought about being a beauty therapist, swimming teacher or a gardener? And could a cash handout convince you to get the skills to do it? Well, the federal government has put these jobs and dozens more on what's called the Australian Apprenticeships Priority List to try to fill workforce shortages. Political reporter Stephanie Boris explains. 
Heading to the local pool or beach is a favourite summer pastime for many, but it can also be dangerous. Learning to swim takes time and practice. Brendan Ward is the Chief Executive Officer of Australian Swimming Coaches and Teachers Association. If people are not receiving the Learn to Swim and Water Safety education, then that means that there are immediate issues and dangers. The problem is there aren't enough swimming teachers, as Justin Scar from Royal Life Saving Australia explains. Based on job ads, uh, one in two pools at the moment are advertising for swimming teachers. So we estimate that there's a shortfall of about 2,500 to 3,000 swimming teachers today. Swimming coaches and instructors have now been placed on the Australian Apprenticeships Priority List. Brendan O'Connor is the Minister for Skills and Training. It's a way of, in a snapshot, identifying the priority areas so that when we invest in education and training, we're investing in areas that will uh, contribute to the supply that's in demand. 39 occupations have been added to the list this year, bringing the total to 111. We've got a skill shortage across the economy, across the labour market, and therefore the task of responding to that is significant. Jobs on the priority list are eligible for federal support in an attempt to fill the gaps. Apprentices get up to $5,000 over two years, while wage subsidies are offered to employers across three years. Veterinary Nurses Council of Australia President Rebecca Coventry says financial support will make a difference. It will give the students opportunity to be paid as they learn. It will give employers reassurance that their staff are being trained appropriately. Other jobs needing workers and considered a priority include beauty therapists, building inspectors, dental technicians, tour guides, youth workers and wool classes, as well as horse trainers, blacksmiths, gardeners, security officers and picture framers. The question is just how many apprentices will finish their training, given completion rates across all sectors have been low for many years. Brendan O'Connor concedes more must be done to boost the rate. It's not just about income support or support for employers. We do need to find a way to encourage young people and people changing their occupations to withstand relatively low wages for a short period in order to have more secure work and higher wages over your working life. So we're reviewing the whole approach to apprenticeships. Skills Minister Brendan O'Connor ending that report by Stephanie Boris. There are some encouraging signs that soaring power prices might be on the way down. The latest report from the Australian energy market operator shows wholesale prices halved in the final three months of the year as renewables set new supply records. Angus Randall reports. Australians have been paying some of their biggest electricity bills yet, but a new report foreshadowing a reprieve is welcome news to the Australian industry group's tenant read. There was a lot of concern from uh, from industry about the steep increase over the past year in the new electricity prices that they were being offered in new contracts. In the eastern states and South Australia, the Australian energy market operator, AEMO, found wholesale prices more than halved in the final three months of last year. But in Western Australia's biggest electricity market, average wholesale prices ballooned 50%, compared with the same period in 2021. Across the board, all prices remain well above average. Higher prices in WA, uh, of course, will, will be a worry to businesses in the region. They reflect uh, a shift uh, over the quarter from coal to gas as uh, coal generation was 
conserved to preserve coal capacity for the heights of summer. AEMO reports the contribution from coal and gas fell while there was record solar and wind output. At one point, renewable sources accounted for 70% of power in the eastern states and 85% in the west. Analyst Tim Buckley from Climate Energy Finance says it's a sign of the future. The AEMO report is a stark reminder that uh, the energy transition in Australia is very, very much well-established and accelerating beyond anyone's expectations. So we need to repair. It is inevitable. The hyper-fossil fuel inflation of last year and the disruption of supply definitely caused massive disruptions, but the underlying trends are clear. The report also notes the federal government's temporary cap on coal and gas markets brought in in December resulted in steep price falls on the electricity futures market. That is an absolute instantaneous acknowledgement that the caps were exactly the right market intervention. We had market failure and the government took drastic steps to correct that market intervention. As additional renewable energy was added to the national market between October and December, AEMO also found emissions dropped to their lowest levels since the start of the market in 1998. Wind and solar plants now account for 20% of the total generation in the market, a figure which does not include the huge amounts of rooftop solar in the system. And as for the outlook for power bills, analysts believe the peaks of last year are for now at least in the rearview mirror. The forward electricity prices have been easing since mid-October. Since the threat of intervention was first announced, the forward markets, the financial markets, are extrapolating the intervention and showing that that will have a permanently lower reduction in electricity prices at the wholesale level in the NEM over 2023. Tim Buckley from Think Tank Climate Energy Finance, ending that report from Angus Randall and Annie Guest. You might remember a couple of days ago we told you how executives from some of the most popular dating apps are going to a government forum today about how to improve safety for users. Well, with alarming rates of sexual violence being experienced either online or in the real world, some advocates say it's going to take a lot of work to make changes. Here's political reporter Nor Hader. Online dating isn't new, but over the last decade, mobile dating apps have rapidly expanded. But for many, the experience is far from pleasant. The online and offline world are so morphed, especially for young people and the way we interact that online dating has become a norm which is completely fine but it opens it opens the door for lots of kind of abuse and online harassment. That's Chanel Contos, founder of the Teach Us Consent movement. She'll be amongst dozens of people attending a roundtable focused on improving online dating safety. Senior representatives from Bumble, Grindr and Tinder's parent company Match Group will be there, along with federal and state government ministers, criminology experts, law enforcement and women's safety advocates. I've just had so many stories that people have reported people that they've you know, had unpleasant experiences with and they either pop up on another app or they're on the same app with a different profile again. I think we also need to address this issue of catfishing. People have their identities stolen. There should be more verification. But stronger online safeguards won't be enough. She says dating companies have a broader social responsibility. They should have a serious vested interest in ensuring that young people and its users know what a healthy relationship looks like, know what consent looks like. 
A survey by the Australian Institute of Criminology last year exposed the prevalence of the problem. Three quarters of respondents said they'd been subjected to online sexual violence while using dating apps, while one in three people said they'd faced sexual violence at the hands of someone they'd met up with after matching with them online. I guess what I want to do is understand, well, how do we define violence? Because you haven't been raped and or murdered doesn't mean you haven't been exposed to really negative and or dangerous behaviours and had your personal safety compromised. That's Catherine Burney, director of the National Women's Safety Alliance. She supports calls for criminal background checks to weed out perpetrators, but says that alone won't solve the problem. When you look at the sexual violence conviction rate in Australia, um, you know, you've got 13% of complainants going through a formal process with police. And out of that, what is it, 4 to 6% conviction rate. She's glad the dating app giants have come to the table and appear open to collaborating to reduce harm. But she has some questions she'd like answered. I'd actually like to know how they view their accountability. And so I'd like to know, well, what do you see your role as the platform and the facilitator of these relationships? What do you think your user obligations are? Catherine Burney from the National Women's Safety Alliance, ending Nor Hater's report. Over the past four and a half years, about 11,000 survivors of child sexual abuse have been found to be eligible for what's known as the National Redress Scheme. It was set up after the Royal Commission, and apart from providing counselling and a payment, it allows survivors to get what's called a direct personal response from the institution involved. But as Meg Bolton reports, some survivors are still waiting for that response. For 60 years, Queensland woman Diane Lynn has been waiting for justice and to be heard. She was younger than five when she was first sexually abused by members of the Jehovah's Witnesses congregation her family attended. The abuse continued for years and she's still waiting for the institution to acknowledge it. It's really, really trying on your mental, physical, emotional... It's just... It's horrendous. Every day I checked to see if there was a message. Every day I checked to see what was going on. Every day, every single day. After applying to the National Redress Scheme, Diane Lynn was offered financial compensation, counselling and what's known as a direct personal response. I, I think that probably it was the most powerful moment, one of the most powerful moments in my life. So, yeah. I think it's validation that someone actually listened for the first time in my life. She contacted the Jehovah's Witnesses in November last year and says she's heard nothing since. It's just very, very frustrating when they don't respond, you know, in, the, in a timely manner. The ABC asked the Jehovah's Witnesses why Diane Lynn hasn't received her direct personal response and when she'll get it. In a statement, a spokesperson says the law prevents an institution from commenting on individual cases. The ABC also asked the Department of Social Services what's in place to ensure an institution responds to a survivor and what are the consequences if it doesn't comply. In a statement, a spokeswoman says while it can't comment on individual cases, all institutions are required by law to respond and that the scheme would investigate any complaint. 
As she navigates the process, Diane Lynn is getting support from No More, a free independent legal service for abuse survivors. Simon Brooke is the principal lawyer. We have social workers and counsellors and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander engagement advisors. So depending on what um, support people need, we hope that we can provide um, holistic support to them to try and reduce the stress that inevitably goes along with bringing up some of the uh, previous trauma. For Diane Lynn, getting that direct personal response is the most important. I reckon that now is the time to make them accountable and apologise, a direct personal response to what has been going on for years and to make changes to their policy and procedure because if we don't have change, what was the reason for all of this? Child abuse survivor Diane Lynn ending Meg Bolton's report. A judge in the US state of Georgia is hearing arguments on whether to make public the report from a special grand jury which investigated Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. There could be recommendations on criminal charges against the former president and his allies. North America correspondent Barbara Miller reports. At the heart of the Fulton County, Georgia investigation is a now infamous phone call. And there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. That's the then President Donald Trump in January 2021 pleading with Georgia's Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes. What's called a special grand jury, a total of 26 jurors drawn from the public, has completed a seven-month investigation into possible election interference. The special grand jury doesn't have the power to issue criminal indictments, but it can recommend them. The district attorney in charge of the Fulton County probe, Democrat Fanny Willis, will now decide whether or not to ask another grand jury to issue indictments. Judge Robert McBurney is currently hearing arguments on whether or not the findings should be made public. Those grand jurors ought not to talk about their deliberations, but when they're done, what pops out of the toaster instead of an indictment is a final report. I don't see how that's secret based on the statutory framework. Former U.S. attorney in the District of Middle Georgia, Michael Moore, says it'll be a difficult decision. My best guess is that he'll split the baby in this case. And he'll decide that uh, the public does have an interest, but great portions of the report should be redacted, or he may tie it to some sort of deadline uh, uh, dealing with the district attorney's decision to seek indictments or not. Donald Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, has appeared before the Georgia grand jury, as has his former chief of staff, Mike Meadows, and senior Republican senator, Lindsey Graham. In a statement, lawyers for Donald Trump said while the grand jury had heard from dozens of high-ranking officials, it did not subpoena the president. Therefore, the statement reads, we can assume that the grand jury concluded that there were no violations of the law by President Trump. Former U.S. Attorney Michael Moore says it's not that simple. Typically, if you're a prosecutor, you would not subpoena a, a potential target of an investigation to testify in front of a grand jury. And that's because the Constitution gives that person certain rights 
uh, and, and one of those rights would be to not incriminate themselves. The Georgia judge said if he decided to release the findings, that wouldn't happen today. This is Barbara Miller reporting for AM. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Kim Landers. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. He's a self-confessed misogynist who's been charged with rape and human trafficking. So how did Andrew Tate make himself so appealing to millions of people around the world, mostly young men? Today we speak to Matt Defina, who's working with Australian teenage boys to understand why so many are being drawn to Andrew Tate's toxic views on masculinity. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.